earlier this fall, we uh, thought about the significance of a multi-generational church. And I just want to say to you that our hearts should be full when we see uh, parents and children uh, dedicating uh, themselves and their children to the Lord. Uh, The Lord is at work in a unique way right now at Cross Lanes Baptist Church. Uh, We have been blessed with so many uh, new babies and, and young families in recent months and the past couple of years. And I want you to know that that's going to be a significant part of how we're thinking about ministry and uh, how we can really integrate uh, those families uh, who already are serving in many capacities in our church. Uh, But we want to elevate that even more. And we're so thankful to God for what he is doing. And that's not necessarily a normal thing to see that in churches. It's a very healthy sign of where we are as the body of Christ here gathered together. And I just want to recognize that and just ask you to pray toward that end and be grateful to God uh, for what we are currently experiencing. And uh, we want to see that continue. I invite you to turn your Bibles today to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Our text is verse 8 through verse 13 in a message entitled uh, Deacons, Servants in the Church. I want to introduce why I'm preaching this particular message today, but the last time that we were together in 1 Timothy, uh, we focused on God-called church overseers, particularly as we're thinking about distinctives of a gospel-shaped church. So we're working our way through 1 Timothy right now, and we're coming to this passage today, but we noted that order is important in life, and all of us need order, uh, some measure of organization to our lives for our responsibilities, our resources, and our relationships. And we serve a God who is a God of order, and his design is not haphazard in any way. We also emphasized some foundational concepts of the church, that order is part of how the church is to function. Uh, We are continually looking to Christ as the head of the church. He's the one that gets the glory. He's the one who shows us the way. And then overseers or pastors of the church, as we saw in the previous passage, uh, represent Christ and are called by God to lead by example. They lead by example through personal character in their family and also in the community. Now, as we're all aware, uh, Christmas is fast approaching, and I plan to cover the remainder of 1 Timothy 3 in three parts. It actually fits quite nicely with the time of the year that we are in. Uh, The first part today is deacons, servants of the church in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 through 13. Then I want to emphasize next week the church as the pillar and the foundation of truth, particularly in verses 14 and 15. But I want to think about it in terms of Christ as the embodiment of truth and what does it mean that truth has come into the world uh, in the embodiment of Christ, the living truth. And then on Christmas Day, we're going to read the traditional Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. But then I'm also going to focus on 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, which is such a beautiful presentation of what Christ came to do. And the mystery of godliness in Jesus Christ fits so well with our celebration of Christmas. Now you might say, how does this apply to me if I'm not a deacon? 
in the church or I'm not particularly called to be one. Well, it applies to all of us more generally because every follower of Jesus is to be a servant. And Jesus set the example for us. He said in Mark 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You remember when he washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. So whatever our specific calling is to apply our spiritual gifts in the church, uh, we're to use those gifts that have been granted to us in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. So if any one of you wants to be great, Jesus said, let him first be a servant. Uh, Some are called then to specific roles in the church. The teaching of the New Testament is that there are two scriptural offices in the church, pastors and deacons. And we looked at how the role of the pastors is presented in terms of overseers, elders, presbyteros, uh, the same office, uh, but using some different words in the application of it. And the pastors have the responsibility to provide spiritual leadership to the church. And when they provide spiritual leadership to the church, they're doing that through preaching the word and shepherding the souls under their care. The deacons then are to serve the church in taking care of physical and ministry needs so that the pastors can concentrate on their primary calling. So the main distinctions are in gifts and calling. Now begin reading in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives too must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children in their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, even before we arrive in this passage in 1 Timothy 3, I believe the office of deacon is actually rooted in Acts chapter 6. I'm not going to read the entirety of that passage. I'm going to refer to a couple of verses there in just a moment. But the situation was that the church in Jerusalem was growing. And the reason that it was growing was that many people had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they came to know Christ. They were converted during that time. And they stayed on in the city to grow in their new faith. And this raised many material needs. There were many widows in the church that apparently were not being sufficiently served. The Greek-speaking Jews felt that their widows were being neglected uh, in favor of the native Hebrews. And the apostles could not afford to be pulled away from their primary focus to meet the needs that had been made evident. So they instructed the church to select seven faithful men who they would put in charge of meeting those needs. Acts chapter 6 and verse 3 and 4 says this, Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, 
full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The prayer and the ministry of the word are the primary responsibilities of the shepherds, of the pastors. And if the under-shepherds of Christ are faithfully fulfilling their duties through prayer and ministry of the word, the rest of the ministry of the church will flow from that. But if those who are in those roles are not doing that, the church is going to be chaos and there are going to be problems that quickly ensue. So in order to make that point, they made sure that there were going to be people who met some practical needs in the church to support what they were doing through the prayer and the ministry of the word, what the apostles were carrying out. Now, the word deacon is not actually used in this passage, but historically the church has held that this is the beginning of the deacon ministry. Uh, These men were chosen or officially recognized and set apart for the task. The word translated as deacon means literally a humble servant. It means one who ministers to and cares for others. Now, this word is generally used uh, to mean servant in a more broad application in the scripture uh, to a variety of people. Uh, Paul refers to himself at one point as a servant. Uh, Christ is referred to certainly as a servant. But then there are a few places where it specifically refers to the office of the deacon. And that's the case with 1 Timothy 3. So what I want to do in these few moments that we have together is to consider the characteristics of deacons from these verses that we just read. And the first is this. A deacon is to be a man of character. Now, character has been defined as the strength of your moral fiber. And what you're going to note in this message is that uh, there are a number of things that I'm going to be talking about that are true of us as Christians in general. There's much application in this particular message to each of us who are following Christ, but then there's specific application to those who have been called to the office of deacon. A person's character is ultimately the sum total of their internal intentions, the desires of their heart, and also the action of their lives, paired with their external intentions, in other words, of what they do. Character is also influenced by choices that we make. So you can make a definite decision that you are going to live a life of character. Think about uh, Daniel in the scripture, for example. He was resolved not to defile himself in Babylon, uh, but rather to live a life of unquestionable character. Have you made the determination in your life that it's important for you to live a life of unquestionable character? That is a pursuit that you want to make because you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That should be true of all of us as Christians and then especially of those in the role of a deacon. In Acts chapter 6, the requirements for choosing deacons were that they had to be of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And what you'll note as we work our way through this is that except for the requirement of being able to teach, the qualifications for deacons are comparable to those of the pastors. So a deacon is not specifically required to be able to teach, 
although there are many deacons who also have the ability, the capacity, the gifting to be able to teach, and that's certainly been the case in our church uh, as well. And in some churches, I think part of the problem is, and maybe you've been in one of these churches in the past, is that the biblical model of leadership and servanthood have been exchanged for a business model based on the principles of the world rather than on the power of the Spirit. And this is not what God intended for his church or for the leaders of the church. Now in verse 8, we find a reference here to being worthy of respect. This is basically a man of dignity. It means that he has a uh, serious purpose about him so that people can trust and respect him. It means that he has a seriousness about him, about how he respects God and other people. Now, it doesn't mean that the man can't have a good time or have a good sense of humor or enjoy himself in that way. But it's interesting that one commentator said, this literally means not a clown, not a person who can't easily be respected. Someone who's not worthy of that respect would not be fit for this role or for that of a pastor. Not hypocritical is not double-tongued. This is a man of his word and people can trust what he says. He has no intent to deceive. If he says something, he means it and uh, it's truthful and that's his desire in the way that he lives his life. Uh, Not drinking a lot of wine. We covered this in the role of the pastor as well. Certainly drunkenness is always a sin. Uh, There's a spirit here of being self-controlled And we would couple this with a Romans 14 mentality in our church, meaning that we would not want to take advantage of our Christian liberty in such a way that we would cause anyone else to stumble or lead anybody else down a path that would not be helpful for them spiritually. And so we determined that we're going to live in a certain way so that we would not do that. And it certainly applies uh, to this issue. Not greedy for money means not greedy for dishonest gain. And I think this is important because a deacon's responsibilities often include benevolence and other matters where finances may be involved. So you want a man that can be trusted, that can manage uh, things in the church if he's given specific responsibilities to do so. And you don't have to worry about whether or not he's greedy for money or in some way uh, directing himself toward dishonest gain. I like the way F.B. Meyer put it. And he's speaking here about character and practice, not just for deacons, but even more broadly. And he says, the supreme test of goodness is not in the greater, but in the smaller incidents of our character and practice. Not when we are standing in the searchlight of public scrutiny, but when we reach the firelight flicker of our homes. Not when we are, uh, not we are who we are when some clarion call rings through the air, summoning us to fight for life and liberty, but our attitude when we are called to sentry duty in the gray morning when the watchfire is burning low. He says, it is impossible to be our best at the supreme moment if character is corroded and eaten into by daily inconsistency, unfaithfulness, and besetting sin. So he's basically saying, when those moments come and we've got to step forward and we've got to step up, you're going to step forward and step up based on who you really are. And if you're not who you need to be in Christ, 
you're not going to have the character to do it. And this is especially so for those who serve as deacons because there are many crises moments in the life of a church that the more broader church body doesn't even necessarily know ever happen. There are family situations that come up and circumstances that present themselves and the servants in the church have to step forward and be a blessing in that moment and they have to be a a person of character in order to do that effectively. Second, a deacon is to be a man of conviction. Now, I've already noted that deacons are not required to be able to formally teach as the pastors are, though they may be gifted in that way. But it is vital that they know what the Scripture teaches. And this also applies in this way, because do you want to go to a man for some assistance and prayer who doesn't know what the Word of God says? Do you want to have someone serving among you in this role who's not going to give you wise counsel when you ask for it? Do you want a man that is unstable in his own ways when you're trying to find some stability in your life? Obviously, the answer to all those questions is no. So we need men who are men of conviction. And verse 9 says that they hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let's think about this concept of mystery just for a moment. It's a theme that arises often uh, for Paul in his writing. And essentially, he's describing something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. Now, before I get to the whole issue of what specifically is Paul talking about here, let's think about the progressive nature of the story of God as it is in the Scripture. When the Bible opens, it doesn't give a defense for the existence of God. It just assumes that he is and that he has eternally been. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We serve a God who is self-existent. He is eternal. He is over all things. And he spoke creation into being something out of nothing. And he made it as it is. He created people for a relationship with him. And we were intended to commune with God and to know him. And you know the story in the garden of Adam and Eve. You also know that sin entered into the world. And when sin entered into the world, chaos ensued and there was a penalty for it. And that penalty was death. There's an early promise of a deliverer in Genesis 3 and verse 15. And then from there, the story is on all the way to the end of the book. The prophecies are given that there's a redeemer who is coming. Uh, God raises up this nation of Israel so they can be a special people and be a light to all the other nations. And through them, the Messiah would come. The prophets foretold that message time and time again within the history of Israel. And then in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And he sent forth his son to be born of a virgin. And Christ entered into this world. And God manifested himself in the flesh, 100% God and 100% man. And in doing so, he made himself known to us preeminently. And he has spoken in various times and in various ways in times past. But now he has spoken to us through his one and only son. This is the manifestation, the uncovering of the mystery. What was once unknown has now been made known to us. It's been revealed to us. So this is Paul's way of referencing Christian truth, specifically the gospel. And he says in Ephesians 6 and verse 19, 
Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Archie Hughes put it this way. He said, the Old Testament mystery was how can God forgive sins? It was answered by Jesus' death as the Father's incarnate and sinless Son who suffered the wrath we deserved, thus making forgiveness possible. The mystery was made clear by Christ, and thus it is often referred to as the mystery of Christ. So God knew the story from the beginning to the end, but he pulled the curtain back, as it were, little by little, progressively, until it was all on display in the person of Jesus. This is what deacons have to understand and hold on to. A deacon must believe that the Bible is true. When you meet those moments of need in the life of the church, you cannot have any question in your heart whether or not this word is inspired and inerrant and infallible and sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. In moments of discouragement, maybe even when things aren't going the way they should in the life of the church, you've got to believe that what God has said is true. And as you believe it, you hold to the truths of the Christian faith. And not only do you hold for the truths of the, to the Christian faith, but you also contend for what you believe. You are willing to step forward and say, no, that's not right. No, that's not consistent with Scripture. No, you shouldn't make that decision. Yes, you should take that step because that honors and glorifies God. All of these things are filtered through the Word. So you got to know what you believe, why you believe it, and you got to be willing to apply it. This applies to us as well. And then to do so with a clear conscience, as the scripture indicates here, means that what you believe matches up with how you live. Now let's deal with this issue of conscience for a moment because it is a prominent issue in 1 Timothy, not only for the deacons, but also uh, for the believers uh, altogether. Paul emphasized the necessity of a good conscience when he told Timothy to command the false teachers to stop spreading their errors. And he said in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now think about it this way, church. The goal of our instruction, he's talking about, listen, the message that we're giving you as a church is from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And this is what we want to be the reality in your life. Are you seeking a pure heart? Is this who you want to be in Christ? Do you desire to have a good conscience and to live out a sincere faith? The theologian Jonathan Edwards likened the conscience to a sundial and God's word to the sun. He said, only the light of the sun will give the correct reading. Moonlight cannot work. Candlelight's folly. Both will mislead you. But the sunlight of scripture will always tell the truth. And when we live by the truth with a clear conscience, we are in great shape. This may be the only thing that you need to hear today. If your conscience 
is not matching up with what you say you believe and who you profess that you are, the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. The Holy Spirit will put on display the things that are not good and are not holy and are not helpful for your life. One of my favorite phrases is that most people are just a prayer of repentance away from true life change. It's not original to me, but I've owned it as mine. Maybe today your life is just a prayer of repentance away from true life change. Maybe it's because you've never met Christ and God's convicting you of that. Or maybe it's because you have met him and you know him by faith, but you know your life is inconsistent with who he's called you to be. God wants you to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's the aim of our teaching. And if it's anything else, it falls short of what the scripture has instructed us to share with you. A deacon is to be a man of conviction. And then third, a deacon is to be a man of consistency. Look again at verse 10. It says he's to be tested and found to be above reproach. That's literally translated as not called to account. In other words, a prospective deacon's reputation ought to be evaluated. They must first be tested. Then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Now, I think the the reason testing is required is not an official test or even a a probationary period necessarily. I think it's an evaluation of character. I think if the church is going to select men to serve as deacons, then they should evaluate both the positive and the negative aspects in his life. And the qualification is that they be above reproach or to be blameless. Now, this is not sinless perfection. Otherwise, you would have no qualifying pastors and you would have no qualifying deacons. None of us would qualify. This is not sinless perfection. But it is growth in holiness and a consistency about who we are striving to be so that our interactions with others are of a moral quality that they don't bring disgrace on the body of Christ. It is a pattern of living that we should evaluate and see whether or not a man would qualify in this regard. Deacons should demonstrate these character traits and a knowledge of God's word before being a deacon. And that's where the biblical examination comes in uh, before they would serve. So let me tell you what consistency means. This is not just for the deacon. This is for you as well if you're not a deacon. Consistency in your faith means that your walk with God is consistent at home, in your vocation, in the church, and in the community. It means that there is no place for compartmentalizing our our spiritual side and then acting as we want to in, in other areas. It means that our life with Christ informs every area of our practical life on this earth. That's what we're striving toward. And we do it by God's grace. Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So how do we do it? We lay aside those hindrances. Those hindrances are primary, primarily sin. And we 
fix our eyes on Jesus, remember, look to Christ, the point of the whole deal. That, that, that's the point of the church. Look to Christ. Just keep looking to him. Keep your eyes on him. And then as you do that, you run a race of consistency. Now let's draw an analogy here from a, a literal physical race. A runner in a race is going to wear special shoes, depending on what type of race they're running. Uh, they're going to run particular. Clo- they're going to wear particular clothes based on the type of race that they're running. Why? Because they want to run the race without being hindered. They don't want anything holding them back. They don't want anything pulling them back. So they're going to get ready for it in, in, in the right way. The Christian life is the same. To live consistently for God. We have to remove those hindrances and the sin that holds us back. And we need to run that race for the Lord consistently. So that's why we're careful about the men who serve as deacons in this church. Because if they're one thing here and another thing at home and another thing at work and another thing in the community, you got all kinds of trouble. Then there's a section on family that follows. Verse 11, wives likewise should be worthy of respect, not slander, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Now let me state here for the wives of deacons here for a moment. This is directed specifically toward you. Herein lies your responsibility to support the deacon in his role. You are to be worthy of respect, not a slanderer, self-controlled. Now I want you to watch this last part of verse 11 in particular. Faithful in everything. Nobody gets a pass on that. If your husband is going to serve faithfully, then you are called to be faithful in everything. That's God's call on your life. And you ought to want to honor it as God has blessed you to do that. Now, I do want to note here that some argue for women deacons from uh, verse 11, uh, translating wives as women, so that verse 11 would read, in the same way women are to be women worthy of respect. Uh, I think that's a stretch as it relates to the office because deacons are the focus on both sides of verse 11. And I think it's particularly a stretch because verse 11 is qualified by verse 12. And deacons are to be the husbands of one wife and managing their children and their own households competently. What about this issue of deacons being a husband of one wife? Well, if married, just like the pastor, he's to be a one-woman man. He's to be faithful to his wife. If he has children, he better manage his children and his household well, as effectively and faithfully as he can, uh, by God's uh, grace and with his help. And the basic message here to the wives of deacons is that a deacon is to have a wife who's to be as respectable as he is. That's as simple as I can put it, to be as respectable as he is. And she will be expected to help him fulfill certain duties and uh, roles and responsibilities, I should say, in the church. And there's just something that that is unique about the uh, strength that a godly couple will bring to the deacon's ministry. Now, I do not believe that either a pastor or a deacon are required to be married. Uh, There is, after all, the provision for singleness in the Scripture. Some would interpret it that way. 
But you remember Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7 and 8, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. And then he said, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. So what we understand from the teaching of Scripture is that some have the gift of singleness, uh, others the gift of marriage. We would also say that marriage is normally going to be the case, of course, for the majority of people at some point in life. But I want you to hear this clearly, and this is not just based on this particular message. I, particular message, I want you to hear it more broadly. A single person is not a second-class Christian citizen in any way. And we see that in the, in the Bible. It, it can be a calling. And then also singleness is sometimes for a season of life until God brings a person to a place of marriage if that's going to be uh, their calling in life. And now let's look at verse 13, and I'm going to wrap up. It says, For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this carefully, deacons. Those of you who have served well will get a twofold reward before men and God. You will have a good standing before the people you serve. You'll be respected by the church. And then you'll have boldness and confidence because of your faith in Christ. And the character, conviction, and consistency of deacons ought to be the same regardless of what church they serve in. What you will find is that sometimes from church to church, there will be some practical variances as far as what the specific responsibilities are of the deacons because every single function is not addressed in the scripture. Every single detail practically is not specified. So there will be some variance from church to church, but there ought to be no variance between character, conviction, and consistency. Now we have currently 12 deacons in our church. That's not a specific number that we would hold to, uh, but that's based on where we see our current ministry needs at and uh, the people that God has raised up to serve in that role. Uh, They are servant leaders. We do not have a deacon board. We have a deacon ministry. And as a church, we describe ourselves as pastor-led, deacon-served, ministry team implemented, and congregationally accountable. That's how we govern and structure and order ourselves as a church. And I want to say that I am very grateful uh, for some of the men who have served in past decades in our deacon ministry because they not only laid the foundation of who deacons were going to be and how they were going to serve in this church, but then they also held the line on it and nurtured it as we brought other men up and uh, put them in those positions of service. Some of them have already graduated to heaven. Uh, Others are no longer able to serve because of uh, age and situation of life. But we are greatly in debt to those men who have structured our deacon ministry as they have. And we've been blessed in this church. Now, how do we select our deacons? Well, we select them through a defined process. You have the opportunity to nominate them. Then they go through a a process of uh, being considered and evaluated. Then ultimately they come back uh, to the church for final approval. We think this is consistent with Acts chapter 6. And we expect deacons to be faithful church members in dispensing their duties. 
You say, what are some things they do practically? Maybe, maybe you're a younger person, and you're like, I don't really even know what deacons do. I, I know what you're talking about, but I don't really know what they do. Or maybe you're newer to our church, and you don't know what it means that they're servant, uh, servants in the church. Well, they serve in crisis ministry. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of crises that come up in the church that the broader church never even knows about. But there's situations that we deal with, there's families that we help, there's circumstances that we engage in, and the deacons are incredibly helpful in, in doing that. Um, they minister through ongoing minister, ministry to families just based on uh, needs that come up. Uh, they are involved in praying for the church. Uh, they administer uh, the ordinances of the church and also support the the administration of the ordinances of the church, both in baptism and the Lord's Supper. They take part in uh, the different ministry efforts that we have. Uh, we have a widow's ministry. We have a benevolence ministry that the deacons uh, administrate uh, based on your giving to help people in our church and both outside of our church. There's a whole lot of things that they do. And we are blessed to have the men that we have. So what do we ask of you as a church? Well, we ask of you as a church to do the same thing for your deacons that you do for your pastors. And that is, pray for your deacons, because they need it. Encourage and support your deacons. Uh, it's not always an encouraging thing to be in these roles, uh, because you are dealing with problems, and you're sometimes seeing people at their worst, and, and there's certain things that come up that are just challenging. And then cooperate with your deacons as they serve you, Let's serve the church together. And I'm going to tell you this in closing. It's a beautiful thing when God's people work together. It really is. It is a blessing to be in a church where God's people work together. We're, we're a collection of imperfect sinners. But we've been saved by a perfect Christ. And he empowers us to serve him to carry out his mission in the world. And there's only one way we can do it. That's together. We do it as we're, we order ourselves according to scriptural mandates. We have the leaders and the servants that we need in the places that we need them. And we just keep moving forward together. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray.